0: Good morning, Four Oaks. I'm Paul Gilbert, Lee Pastor. So glad you were here. I'm going to invite you to open your Bibles to Genesis chapter 6. Before we go there, though, let me just give you a quick update on the Pfeiffer family. Uh, If you're a regular here, you know that Rob and Shannon Pfeiffer oversee our children and student ministries. And their oldest son, Jake, is in Shands right now having tests run on his brain in preparation for... For brain surgery where they 're going to go in and um, try to deal with the source of the of the of the seizures that Jake has been having over the last number of years. Continue to pray for them if you want to get an update on their current happenings, go to the Caring bridge website address up there and you can find out more shannon 's been posting uh, comings and goings they really are uh, this is a strange thing uh, to, to, to ask for prayer for, but they really are praying for seizures okay because Part of, part of the goal, before they can go in and do the surgery and fix what's wrong, they, they, they need Jake to, to, to have multiple seizures so they can measure and know where to go in and do all those sorts of things. So they're really praying for seizures, praying for, for respite, praying for help in um, healing for him. And so well, thanks for thinking of them. Be praying for them. Go on the website and get an update. What, what's interesting about the Four Oaks side of this is obviously they're out of commission for a season And it's a real interesting season, interesting timing that God has put upon us, because this is the time where we typically recruit volunteers for children's ministries, and and one of the things that I really want to call us to in thinking about this this season is one, what a blessing it would be for the Pipers to come in to come in back online here in a couple of weeks, and for all for for the church to have responded enthusiastically. Um, to the needs we have to pour our lives into our children. If you're a regular here, you know that for us, children's ministry is not drop-off ministry. It's not entertainment. Um, it's, it's We certainly have a good time and have fun and all those things, but it's a chance to pour ourselves into the next generation. It's a partnership that we have together as a church family with our families to raise our children up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. And so as I'm looking Across the landscape this morning, I see a sea of veteran parents. Um, I see some fathers and mothers of the faith. I see some of you breathing easy because your kids are finally out the door and those sorts of things. And let me just assure you, now is not the time to breathe easy, okay? Now is the time to pour yourself into our families. Listen, we have a lot of needs in elementary school. We're not asking you to teach a class. We're just asking you to come alongside and help and pour yourself in. And if, if, God, if you feel God stirring in your heart in that way, for Oaks, please stop by, talk to Julia Stake out in the lobby. Julia is kind of holding down things in children's ministries while Shannon is gone. What a great opportunity we have to to bless the Pipers, but also to to pour ourselves into our kids. So there you go. Um, Genesis chapter 6 is where we are. We are back in Genesis after a seven-week hiatus this summer where we were looking at the seven churches of Revelation. If you're, if you're new to us, we preach through books of the Bible, passages of the Bible, and we supply you with these, with these nifty sermon booklets where you can take notes. You can use these in your quiet times. They track with the messages. You can take them to your community groups. They have discussion questions, all that good stuff. But as we were away uh, for the last couple of weeks, um, for part of the time, we were off the grid up in the mountains. It felt like we were filming an episode of The Deliverance or something. And what was interesting is that for, for, for six people... Um, which is number of folks in our family who were like plugged into the interwebs for our very livelihoods, right? For our very existence. It's let's say after day two of no internet access, we all start to twitch, you know, when we, we, we got to get on something. But there were those glorious moments when we'd go out for a walk, and like we would ascend to the top of some mountain and like for a brief second we would have cell coverage. Okay, it was glorious. It's like like all the messages would start pouring in, and it was like going to our mailbox and like, hey, what's happened in the world since we were since we were offline? The same sort of thing is happening here in the book of Genesis since we were last there. Remember that we 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 spent the spring talking about the creation and the fall, and that even though mankind had had sort of brought sin and destruction upon himself and herself, God had made a promise. And the promise was in Genesis 3.15 that I'm going to fix this, God said. I'm going to raise up a Messiah um, from the line of Seth. I'm going to save the world. He's going to crush Satan's head. He's going to bring mankind and God back into reconciliation together. And then we we sort of begin to trace those two lines remember there were two lines two two parts of the family tree that each and every human being is a part of we're either part of the the line of seth which is the line of promise where the messiah comes from or genesis says we're from the line of cain those who've turned away who don't worship the living and true god and we've been sort of tracking these two lines of people and as we come back online so to speak with genesis chapter 6 this morning we get an update, we reconnect to the internet, so to speak, and we, we get a glimpse of what's been happening while we've been away, how, how, this, how these two lines have been progressing. And Genesis 6 is going to tell us that the returns on election night are not promising. Things have grown very dark in the history of mankind And this morning we're going to look at what exactly is happening and what God decides to do to remedy it. So we're going to be in Genesis 6. I'm going to invite you to stand this morning. We're going to read verses 1 through 8. Listen to the reading of God's Word. When man began to multiply on the face of the land and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive... And they took as their wives any they chose. Then the Lord said, amen, my spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh. His day shall be 120 years. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days and also afterward when the sons of God came into the daughters of man and they bore children to them. These were the mighty men who were of old, the men of renown. found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, when we come to this passage that has all sorts of, let's be honest, bizarre, complex, weird things from a 21st century perspective going on, we're just cognizant that we need your word. We need your Holy Spirit to make your word alive to us. The Apostle Paul tells us that all scripture is God-breathed. Yes, Genesis 6 is breathed out by you. And so we stand in need of your illuminating work of grace in our hearts this morning. We ask that you would do it. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may take your seats. The title of this message is The State of Man, A Crushing Verdict, But the Grace of God. And let me just go ahead and give you the heads up. I've done this once already. The first two points are just grim, okay? There, there, there's not a way to make them happy clappy. But I think, as you'll see, it's really, really important that we sink our teeth into these first two points to fully understand and embrace the third. So here we go the state of man. Now, in a world where Follows and likes and hashtags and retweets, all of these things converge, don't they, to tell us at any given point in time what is trending in our culture. And Genesis 6 sort of serves the same purpose. It tells us what is trending in human, humankind culture at this point in history. It's what Derek Kidner calls a new stage in the progress of evil. And that would be a good one for you to to take home tonight and do a little devotional on, right? A new stage in the progress of evil. In a sense, humans are breaking bad. You see, as as mankind is multiplying and spreading over the face of the earth, he's sort of infecting everything around him as he goes with sin. It's almost as if Genesis 6 is telling us that this spiritual darkness is has sort of descended over the land. It's Cain's line, not Seth's, that is trending. It's the line of evil that seems to be winning the day. It's the the curse of sin over the face of the earth that seems to be holding sway. And Genesis 6 tells us a couple of things that are going on. Look at verse 2. It says that the sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive and they took as their wives any they chose. Now this has been, there's been no shortage of theological debate over the history of the church as to what Moses is talking about here. One traditional interpretation, and by the way, you can find an outline of some of these different views in your in your booklet. Um, one of the traditional views is that what Moses is describing here are in fact fallen angels, demons, um, who take human form, who come on the earth, who intermarry with humankind, and that their progeny um, end up being these big, bad, evil dudes. Now, let me just say this. there's There's a biblical pathway to that interpretation. I don't have time to go into it this morning. But I don't think that's what Moses is pointing us towards. I think it's actually much more simple and straightforward than that. See, I think that Jesus makes it, first of all, very clear that angels are neither given in marriage nor marry, And what are demons? They, in fact, are fallen angels. See, I think we have a clue as to what's happening by the way verse 2 is phrased. Let's look there again. It says, the sons of God saw, keep that in mind, that the daughters of men were attractive and they took. Now, that word attractive can also be pleasant to the eye. Now, let's think for a second. We're in Genesis and our study so far. Have we heard that sort of phraseology or form of language? Of course, we've heard it in the garden. It says Adam and Eve saw that the fruit was what? Pleasing to the eye, and then they took. And I think Moses is using this same sort of pattern to communicate something about something that's happening in the line of Seth. See, I think the sons of God is just a metaphor for the line of Seth. The daughters of man is a metaphor for the line of Cain, right? And I think what Moses is describing here is that the line of Seth, the sons of God, were repeating the pattern of disobedience in the garden by taking on wives or marrying or intermarrying into the line of Cain. See, this is this, part of God's plan from the very beginning was that he would have a people that were holy, that were separate, that were set apart. He wanted them to remain pure, not out of a hate or dislove of mankind, but out of a preservation for them. Because God says, I'm going to preserve this line. I'm going to raise up the Messiah for the sake of Winning the nations, drawing the nations, saving the nations to myself. And God says, in order for that to happen, the line of promise has to be pure. I have to have a people who are set apart for obedience and holiness. Remember when Moses was writing this, the Israelites were wandering in the wilderness. They were getting ready to go into the promised land to conquer it that was full of pagan nations, pagan people idols, false worship, false temples, false sacrifices. And what was one of the chief warnings that we hear continually from God through Moses to the people of Israel? Be holy as I am holy. Don't intermarry. Don't mix and match your religions. Don't, don't let lightness dwell with darkness. And Moses' intention here, and it, to them and to us, is to say, if you want to know where things went wrong with humanity, kind of subsequently after the fall, this is where it happened. I had a people who did not have their hearts set upon me, upon being holy, upon being obedient, upon being a people that were set apart for my worship. You see, they had a posture... These, the line of Seth at the time, I look back at verse two and it's interesting, the language, it says, they had a posture where it says, and they took as their wives any they chose. See, these were not brides or marriages given to them by God. These were sort of things they entered into independently, autonomously, self-sufficiently with no regard of what God's word would have to say about marriage or relationships, now, one of the fundamental questions that we have to grapple with, and this is not the main point of the text, but it's certainly an important point, and it's just a fundamental question we have to wrestle with if we call ourselves a Christian, if we're, if we're professing faith in Jesus Christ, Christian, have you at a basic level submitted your relationships to God? Do you have a fundamental posture that says, God, whatever your word says about marriage, Whatever your word says about divorce, whatever your word says about friendship, whatever your word says about community, I'm there. It may not always make sense to me. It may not be what my heart says. It may not feel like flourishing. But God, do I trust you enough in order to entrust myself to you in your word? You see, whether it's romantic relationships, close relationships, community life, we've all been around enough to know that so much is at stake in those choices, aren't they? Relational decisions are some of the most important ones we will ever make in our lives. Relational decisions, who we're going to marry. Is it a Christian? Is it a non-Christian? Are we going to be faithful? Are we going to endure? Are we going to persevere? Do I align myself with someone who's who's strong in the faith? Or do am I just sort of kind of hanging out and sort of kind of being carried along by that friendship? See, all of these things sort of fall under this sway, any that I choose. See, it's a reminder, church, that darkness cannot dwell with light, that we ultimately cannot have two lovers. We're either in love with Jesus or in love with the world, to which you might say, but, but Pastor Paul, doesn't Jesus talk about being salt and light? What about being a witness? What about being on mission? Oh yes, absolutely. See, but there's a difference in being on mission and being a witness and being salt and light than just hanging out. just kind of going with the flow. Like if you're in a relationship right now and, and, and you have been for some time and you don't know where that other person is spiritually, or you've never talked about the things of God, there's a good chance that you're you're not on mission, okay? You're not on mission. You're being carried along because it's a rule of thumb. Relationships will always gravitate to the lowest common denominator. And if you find yourself in any kind of relationship and you are being influenced more than you are influencing, that's always a concern. And so, so, so Jesus makes a claim on our relationships. He makes a, ca- a claim on our marriages. He makes a claim on our marital status. He makes, a, he makes a claim on all of those things. This text speaks to it. A second thing that we find in this passage, and again, this is another hotly debated issue, is something we find in verse 4. It says, "...the Nephilim were on the earth in those days." What on earth is the, is the, are the Nephilim? I think in the Hebrew, it's translated Mr. Snuffleupagus, or Hepalumps, or something. Actually, it's translated literally giants or mighty men. Now, again, theologians have debated this. Are these, are these the progeny of the sons of God and the daughters of men? Are these like physical giants? And you just need to know that term giants can be translated a variety of ways. It can mean kings or warriors or mighty men. In fact, I think that's exactly what Moses is referring to here that this is a term, an expression by the fact that in those days, not only were the people of God, the line of Seth, utterly corrupting themselves, but natural humanity, the line of Cain, was following suit. They were living independent, autonomous, proud, self-reliant lives. They They were going about their business. They had no need of the worship of the living and true God. They were living independently defiantly, arrogantly. And I think the reason that Moses mentions these Nephilim alongside these intermarriages that were happening is because both sort of have the same root. Both ultimately put their stake in the ground and say, God, I know what's best for my life. And and you're fine, I'm fine to bring you along as long as you sort of endorse what I've already decided to do. But when it comes to being Lord of my life, I'm not having any of that. You know, Tim Keller had an interesting quote recently. He always has an interesting quote. He said that when it comes to the cost of discipleship, for for most Christians, now listen, for most Christians, we never say, well, you know, I'm not willing to pay a cost or I'm not willing to give things up. All of us will say that we, we, we are. But what can sometimes distinguish us, distinguish us is that we still want to have ultimate sway over what those things are. And here, this is a living, breathing example of that, and it's why God offers this devastating assessment, and it is devastating. Look at verse five. It says, "The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart." Was only evil continually. Now, this phraseology, God saw, again, let's think about where we've heard that before. It was in the garden, right? It says that God made everything, and each day was punctuated by what? God saw that it was good. God saw that it was good. And there, it doesn't mean like just an intellectual knowledge, it means God said, I have myself crafted this. I intimately know it. It's a part of, it's, it's flowed from my fingertips and my glory, so I know it like I know myself. And what God is saying is that I'm looking down on humanity, and, and I'm not just a distracted, distant God that's like, kind of observes things. He's like, I know it. I, I see it. I'm, I'm in tune with it. And he gives this just stinging indictment. Look in verse 5 when he describes sin. He says, every, only, and continually. See, and the the expression is really just meant to convey something just fundamental to us, as if we didn't know this. That sin does not simply impact a portion of our lives. Sin are not simply mistakes or missing the mark. You see, sin is a condition. And sin, as such, has infected every area of our lives. Do you realize that there is no part of your life or my life, our intellect, our thoughts, our emotions, our behaviors, our relationships, our motivation, that is not in some way tainted by sin? When we use the word total depravity, we don't mean that man is as bad as he possibly could be. Because we do believe in God's common grace that restrains man. But what we do mean by total depravity is that every area of our lives is in some way impacted by a a gut level heart rebellion against God. Now you may say, Pastor Paul, why is Moses telling us all this? Why is he telling the Israelites wandering in the wilderness all this? I think it's very simple. He wants to communicate and we need to hear this. You cannot save yourself. You are beyond self-improvement. Our problem goes way beyond um, do these three things, get a purpose in life, and you'll be good. Just just plug into whatever you're going to find fulfillment in. Craft your own brand or version of spirituality and it will take you where you want it to go. Moses saying, "No, no, no! You, you've vastly missed. If that's if that's where you are, you've vastly misunderstood the impact of sin. You can't save yourself. And as we're going to see, this sets us up to hear about the only thing that will. But before we get there, we got to hear God's verdict. Number two, a crushing verdict. Verse seven, and this is a hard verse to read, and many stumble over it. But it's here, and we're going to." read it. It says, so the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made them. Now that word blot out literally means to erase. Like in the old days when we would write on our test exam booklets and you would mess it up so bad you would erase what you wrote, but you would erase so hard, you put a hole in the paper, right? Everybody have this experience? That's, that's the word, to utterly wipe out or annihilate. And let's be honest, particularly in the 21st century postmodern context, when we hear, whether you're Christian or not, when we hear words like judgment, wrath, God actually killing people, punishing people, Let's be honest, there's something in us that recoils from that. There's something that wants to run away from that. There's something that wants in us that wants to reframe that. Because there have been many, many so-called self-professing Christians who have radically changed their theology in order to get around verses like that. They have so radically changed their theology that what they embrace is, is unrecognizable from biblical truth and biblical Christianity. This has led some people who are outside the faith to to go as far as to say, well, Christianity is clearly immoral. It's an evil in itself that must be extinguished. And let me just say, first of all, that on one hand, I totally understand that assessment. I totally understand how from a human perspective, this can seem like a very hard idea, a very hard verse. Verse. You see, everybody wants to put God on trial or as C.S. Lewis says, put God in the dock and bring him under judgment, which makes perfect sense if, now this this is the big if, if man is our starting point. See, if, if, if man is your starting point and everything evolves around man, starts with yourself, begins with yourself, ends with yourself, is all about yourself, then yeah, this is a, this is, This verse is untenable, but it's when we begin, it's when we begin with God and who God reveals himself to be. It's only then that we can begin to get in touch with what this verse is talking about. See, next week we're going to talk about the flood, but before the flood can even make sense in a postmodern context, we have to understand something, and it's what this passage tells us. It tells us not just how our sin lands on us, It tells us how our sin lands on God. And it allows us to make him the starting point and not ourselves. Look at verse 6. It first of all says, God was grieved to his heart that he made man. Now that word grieved is the same one that is used when the sons of Jacob exact revenge against the man who raped their sister. It's meant to distinguish or communicate this idea of holy anguish that's compelled to action. It's a, it's a righteous anger. And so the first thing we need, to, we, we need to understand is that our sin grieves God because of who he is. Before we can understand what compels him to action, we have to understand what moves the heart of God. Now, that may seem like a strange expression to you, but just remember, we are made in the image of God. The fact that we have personality and emotions and thoughts, these are all because they are patterned after the very attributes of God. We know that Jesus experienced all of these things. It goes on to say, look in verse 6, that God regretted making man. Now this is clearly, of all the things in this text, this is one of the more difficult ones, probably the most difficult one to grapple with. In fact, in the Hebrew, it actually means to be sorry or to repent for. Let me say, well, Pastor Paul, how, how is that possible? How could God be sorry as if he did something wrong in making man? After all, we read Numbers twenty-three 19. don't have to turn there, but what does it tell us? God does not repent like a man. And some would say, well, see, well, that, that's where the Bible contradicts itself. And it's saying this over here and this over there. I think the way that we have to understand this is that this text is not saying that God did anything wrong by making man. Guys, God, God knew what was going to happen when he made man. From what point in time had God planned for your rebellion and my rebellion? He had planned before the foundation of the world. That's why it says before the foundation of the world, he had set aside his son who was holy and blameless to die for us. So this is clearly not about God being taken by surprise or God doing something wrong or God committing some sort of sin. It's it's an anthropomorphism which just means to say that he's putting in human language this idea that God was grieved to his soul. You know, a lot of times when you see these true crime specials and they'll interview victims of different crimes or their families of these particular victims and your heart just breaks for them. But, you know, some of the saddest interviews are the, are the ones they do with the families of the perpetrators. You, you, I mean, people are broken, but, but you've never seen such brokenness in families because there is this sense in which they're saying, this was my this was my beloved son or my beloved daughter. I loved them. I conceived them. I raised them. And they've gone on to commit these horrific crimes. And in the depths of their hearts, there's something that tells them as would it have been better if they had never been born to begin with. That, that's sometimes the ang- cry of anguish you hear from parents in that situation. And I think that's something, imperfectly analogy, imperfect analogy, what we're hearing from God It's not a profession of guilt. It's a a cry of the heart. And again, why, why is Moses telling us this? Why is Moses telling us this? See, I think Moses is telling us this, is that he's holding up a mirror and says, unless you can understand the nature of your sin, unless you can understand how it lands not just on yourself and your fellow human being, but unless you can understand how it lands upon God... You're never going to understand his grace. You're never going to understand the extent to which he went to to fix what is wrong. You've heard me say this many times. I stole it from some preacher way back in the day, okay? But here it is. If your view of your sin this morning is that big, then for you, Jesus will be about that big. Itty-bitty view of sin, itty-bitty view of God. But if you if, if you're if, if you're if I'm if you're hearing God's word this morning and this is all being impressed upon your heart and you're saying, Pastor Paul, the, the enormity of my sin is being exposed to me by God this morning, praise be to him, because your view of God, your view of his grace will be this big. When you have a big view of your sin, then you have an even bigger view in need of your Savior. Big sin equals the big grace of God, which brings us to our last point. Verse eight, and it's the first word that's clearly the best. God said all these things, I'm going to wipe out everybody. But then in verse eight, he says, but Noah found favor in the eyes of God. That word favor is the same word we use in the New Testament for grace. And we know grace can't be grace if it's earned, or if it's merited, or if it's deserved. Grace is grace because it's grace. It's grace because we don't earn it. We don't deserve it. It's given freely to us. Now next week, if you want to read a little bit ahead, next week as we get into verses 9 and following, we're going to find that Noah was a righteous man, that he was a blameless man in his generation, that he walked with God but I want you to understand the sequencing here and why this equation is of vital spiritual importance. It does not say in Genesis 6 that because Noah was righteous, because he was blameless, because he walked with God, thus God found favor with him. That's not what it says. It says God saved Noah, chose him picked him out, redeemed him, set him apart by his grace. And thus, Noah walked with God. Noah responded in faith. Noah was a righteous man. That order of things is absolutely crucial to your spiritual life and my spiritual life. Again, what Moses is saying is that this line of humanity is going to be preserved. He said, I'm going to wipe it all out. I'm going to start over with Noah, but make no mistake about it. My grace will win the day. I will raise up from the line. Noah's not the person. Noah's son is not the person. David's not the person. None of those people are the people. But I'm going to preserve this line by my grace so that ultimately the Messiah can come and one day wipe out sin once and for all. Verse eight, but Noah. Because where where do you need to be reminded in your life today? But but Noah? Or but the grace of God? Or but the favor of God? That that it's all God's grace, that it's all God's mercy. It's not about you, it's not about what you've done or not done, it's about what he's done for you through his son Jesus. Verse 3 tells us something else about this grace, and I think this is interesting as well. Look at verse 3. It says then the Lord said my spirit shall not abide in man forever for he is flesh, his day shall be 120 years. Again, some theologians think what God is saying is that I'm going to limit the age of man to 120 years. I don't think that's what this re- refers to. One we have people living after the flood who live much longer than 120 years. What I do think God is saying is, I'm going to blot out man, but not today. I'm going to wait. I'm going to wait 120 years. And every day, Noah is going to go out in that cornfield or whatever, and he's going to start building that ark. We need an ark right now, it sounds like, right? He's going to start building that ark, and people are going to come up to him and say, Noah, crazy Noah, what are you doing? Well, I'm building this ark because God's going to destroy—God's going to do what? God's going to destroy the earth in 120 years, and there, there, is, a, there is time for you to, to repent and change. Again, why is, why is Moses telling us this? He's wanting to tell us, four oaks, that as long as we still have breath in our lungs— there's always a window. There's always time. There's always an opportunity to turn to God in faith and repentance. It's not too late. You're saying, Pastor Paul, are are you saying that if the people of earth at that time had turned and repented that God would have saved them? Absolutely. Absolutely. Look at 1 Peter 3.20. It says, Because they formerly did not obey, when God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared, when it says God's patience waited, what is God's patience waiting on? God's patience is waiting on mankind's heart to turn to him. See, Scripture's very clear on this. God desires... No man to perish, but all to come to know Him. Again, other controversial texts. It just simply means this: God saves all kinds of people, but it also means God does not take pleasure. God, God, God does not sit around getting giggles on the fact that that He must punish and pour out wrath and judgment upon sin. That's why His heart is grieved, and that's why He says 120 years. And I will wait patiently. For Oaks, where are you on the 120 year clock, so to speak, in your life? Where have you felt the, the, the move of God, His call, His conviction, His movement, His working, and you've said, you know what? There's plenty of time for that. Not today. God is wanting to communicate to us today. Uh, Today is that day. See, Jeremiah 18 tells us this, And if at any time I declare concerning a nation or a kingdom, I will build and plant it. And if it does evil in my sight, not listening to my voice, then I will relent of the good that I intended to do it. Now, therefore, say to the men of Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem— Thus says the Lord, behold, I am shaping disaster against you and devising a plan against you. Return everyone from his evil way and amend your ways and your deeds. See, it's the kindness of the Lord that leads us to repentance. We say, well, Pastor Paul, are you saying that like whatever I've done prior to my life, whatever I'm doing now, if I simply turn to him in faith and recognize my sin and call out to him that he will save me, that he will cleanse me, could it be that good? And the answer is absolutely. You see, that's the gospel in this passage. See, the gospel in this passage is that even as as we're going to learn next week, God pours out this rain of destruction upon mankind, his indignant righteous wrath poured out on mankind justly, The gospel is this, that God has taken his indignant, righteous rage and anger and poured it out on whom? His Son. So that you and I can find mercy and grace and help in our time of need. See, the gospel is not something for New Testament Christians. The the gospel is all over the Bible. The gospel is good news for you and me today. So would you hear him? Would you not harden your voice, your, your heart to his voice, but would you turn to him? But, but the grace of God. Let's pray.